Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects, a music and mental health podcast. My guest in this episode is Barry Ashworth from the Dub Pistols. He's the patron for the charity Tonic Music for Mental Health. This is a charity that was set up in 2012 by a qualified therapist called Steph. Traditionally, the charity uh, uses the creative arts to support people in a non-clinical way, not just musicians, but people who want to use music to support themselves. Um, The charity's come back with a new initiative this year called Tonic Rider, which has got various famous musicians involved, including Barry himself and also Adam Fycheck from the Baby Shambles, who's been running peer support groups. After this interview, I'll explain a bit more about the details of what Tonic Music for Mental Health are currently doing, including its punk and ska choirs that you can get involved with, and Barry's involvement with his Flying Circus fundraising events. Um, And I'll also chat to the charity's coordinator, Geordie, who's got some exciting announcements about what's in store next for the charity. Um, In the meantime, though, stay here for my chat with Barry. Um, We'll be talking through his career in the club scene, leading to him founding the Dub Pistols and um, discussing his own recovery from addiction and psychosis and how he's been supporting his colleagues this year in the industry who aren't doing too well at the moment. As ever, tweet me at Sound Effects Pod to let me know what you think. Leave a review on iTunes or email me at soundeffectspodcast at gmail.com. That's Sound Effects with an A. I'll provide full details at the end of this episode on how to get in touch with Barry and Tonic Music for Mental Health. And as always, I'll put full details in the show notes underneath this episode of places to find support if you need it. And I'll see you on the other side. Hi. Hi there. So where should we begin? I was thinking that we could maybe begin with you and your experiences in the Dub Pistols, kind of what you what got you into music initially. Yeah, sure. I started, um, like most kids of my age, um, wanting to be a professional footballer. <laughs> was semi-alright, was okay, but wasn't... Um, uh, wasn't the most gifted, um, ended up playing kind of non-league football. And through that, got you know, I was always interested in music. Music was still, you know, was a massive part of my life, but I believed it was something that was well outside of my remit um, um, and, and, and something you only, was only ever really sort of an imaginary dream. Mm. I guess a bit like football, but because I played football constantly, I believed I had some kind of chance. So... Um, during playing football, I took, I suffered a couple of injuries and went to, to Ibiza in 1987. And um, basically, it was pre-summer love and ended up taking a lot of um, things I probably shouldn't have and uh, stayed the whole of the summer. Mm-hmm. And that was really before the whole club scene had started, as we know it. You know, I mean, obviously, clubs have been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um but I came back and then started promoting some of the sort of biggest 
club nights in the UK, certainly in London, um, putting on various DJs from Cole Cox, Andy Weatherall, gave, you know, Darren Emerson from Underworld used to be our resident and gave a lot of bands and DJs their kind of first breaks. It wasn't until really um, the Happy Mondays came along and the Stone Roses and the Manchester scene that um, I decided that I wanted to be in a band. You know, my favourite bands growing up were the Specials and the Clash, which is kind of well documented. And but you know, again, they were kind of a big fantasy, and music was a fantasy. Um, but through through running clubs and watching the Happy Mondays, I decided that because um, as good as they were, it was more about the energy and the, and the, and the pure buzz that they gave off stage. But I kind of thought, well, if they can do it and form a band, then I can do it and form a band and um, went on and started a group called Deja Vu which I kind of really disliked the name because everyone always thought we were a, cover, were a covers band mm-hmm. um, and because I was a club promoter I never really had to do the going around pubs um, playing small shows um, our first show was something like the London Astoria to 800 people and was um, and you know, uh, managed to get on TV with it. Um, so that was kind of how I got into the music industry, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was pretty hedonistic in those days, you know. I mean, it was very much sort of pre after the summer of love. Ecstasy was everywhere. Acid house was everywhere, and um, mm-hmm. and it was kind of the beginning of, I guess, what you call now the rave culture. Some newspapers have called acid house music a sinister and evil cult which lures young people into drug taking. The message is certainly getting across. What do you know about acid house music? There's, there's meant to be a drugs related craze. Uh, seems to be the most wiring thing. And where did you find that out? That was in the paper. Do you think it's a, anything to do with a certain religion, do you think? No, is anything is it? Like that? No, it's no. more to do no. with a kind of a drug, isn't it? Yeah, well, those that take it want to be, oh, be ashamed well, of themselves. I presume they do friends of dancing, that kind of thing. Um, probably out of control, not behaving like normal. Uh, normally they would because they're under um, the effects of the drug. I've just read about it in the newspapers that uh, acid house music, I assumed it was something to do with the drug scene. It must affect the brain in some way. Unless it's just the music that does it. it. All oh, them lights flashing don't do you any good either, do it? Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't even go in the no. pub where them lights are. Oh, no, they drive no. you mate. You know, back in those days, it was kind of more like illegal raves. Um, and they were only illegal because the government didn't realise how to monetise them. Once the government realised they could monetise it, suddenly they became legal and became being called festivals as opposed to being an illegal rave. So that was kind of really my um, journey into the music industry. We had a, a little bit of success with um, with my first group. I think we had a top 40 hit with a cover version of the Wooden Tops track called Why, Why, Why. Why, why, why? Why, why, why? Oh! Um, 
we got onto a big television show called The Word, and then like everything, um, it just imploded, and you know, um, I sort of stopped doing that. I got bored of house music and um, wanted to find something new, so I kind of got into the breakbeat scene then, which was kind of like all the sound, uh, Chemical Brothers came along, Songs of the Siren, My Mercury Mouth, Fatboy Slim, and the Water Sound sounds, and that's kind of when I started Dump Pistols. Six, wasn't it? You started Dead Pistols. That was, yeah. So that was like probably eight years after I'd started being a club promoter mm-hmm. and probably five years after um, my first group. Mm-hmm. But that was never really supposed to be a band. That was always supposed to be a uh, DJ project. It was never supposed to be, uh, it wasn't until we went to America and got a one and a half million dollar deal with Geffen that I kind of um, started to make it more of a band and song based. It's interesting what you're saying there about, you know, the move from the Manchester thing into the 90s because, as you mentioned, like Chemical Brothers, it's interesting how Britpop and this electronic music scene kind of coincided. People talk a lot about Britpop, but they tend to ignore, uh, well, not ignore, but don't talk as much about the electronic side of things that really exploded in the 90s. Um, Probably because more of the... The say your blur and your oasis were more your radio one enemy darlings, whereas the dance culture was a lot more underground, if you like. Mm. You know, the sort of so I think from that perspective, um, that's probably why I think I think history's caught up with that now and it's proven to be, you know, as strong as ever and had a massive influence, especially with now that the lot of that generation have grown up. Mm. And uh, back out wanting to rave. Now their children are free. Now they're free. <laughs> you know. Yeah, as you're saying that about uh, this drug culture, um, I'm thinking about that kind of rock and roll um, identity that usually gets wrapped up in. Um, it tends to be attached to guitar music, but I wondered whether, like within that scene, there was a there was a similar sense of this kind of idealised version of how you're supposed to be in terms of drug taking, in terms of um, living the dream and, and, and that kind of rock and roll myth <laughs> in a way. Well, there was, there's two parts of that. I think um, I think a lot of the rock and roll um, industry was probably based around cocaine mm. and heroin. And... Mm. Um, that's not to say it's it's just those things because those things were everywhere. But mm. um, I think the dance culture was more around ecstasy and love. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And, and kind of every scene has every every generation, whether or not it was you know psychedelic rock of the seventies and it's acid or the mod culture and it's blues. Um, every sort of culture that comes through generally generally comes through with a drug that goes with it, do you know what I mean, that starts that kind of thing. And obviously there would be no club culture had a load of people in 1987 gone to IB for an experience and Alfredo sat on ecstasy, you know, it was the first time I'd taken ecstasy. And 
So, yeah, I mean, that was obviously, and then the next thing, but the, the thing with ecstasy and the same thing with the rape culture was it totally transformed the country and in the way that everything was so territorial mm. and so um, divided, you couldn't go into another city. Say football violence was at its height. You know, um, terrorist culture was absolutely appalling, as you all know, you know, from Heisel. But, you know, football violence was a, a massive thing and, and you couldn't. And suddenly um, everybody was taking ecstasy and suddenly you were going to different parts of the country mm. and you were going to different clubs, say like Manchester, Hacienda, uh, Liverpool Cream, Leeds back to basics, um, London, there was just like God knows. So every Sheffield, Leadmill, Wolverhampton, UK, Midlands, um, every suddenly every city was kind of opening up. And on the terraces, people who would normally be fighting were suddenly singing songs like "He's a Good, He's a Good, mm. He's a Ben, He's a Good." You know, so it become terrace anthems. Yeah. So suddenly it broke down a whole, um, yeah, a whole divide. And suddenly, instead of fighting people, everyone was sort of loved up and hugging each other. So it was kind of, you know, it was a real change in, in, in society. It just broke down a lot of barriers yeah. at that time, you know. I mean, you talk about now and you talk about the county line gangs. Um, this, was, this was totally the opposite. It was a drug that brought everybody together, yeah. you know, whether or not, you know, the long-term effects of it. Yeah, the other thing is obviously when you move into um, rock and roll, and I've always been the... I always believed to be rock and roll that I had to be the most off-it person in the mm. building and mm. that everybody would um, feed off that and that that's what everybody wanted. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't, mm. you know, but unfortunately, and then because after, after, say, after the ecstasy, after the started getting into early 90s or, or later on into the, to the Jump Pistols career, cocaine started to come into our band mm. and the drinking and with it with the change to came to cocaine became the psychosis mm. the paranoia the aggression throw drink into it and it's just a, it's just a recipe for disaster mm. you know and like most bands we just end up hating each other um fighting arguing mm. just unbearable self-egotistical um, nightmares basically to be around and it, it, and it as well as it being a totally really expensive um, mm. and, and, and um, you know it just destroyed everything mm. pretty much destroyed everything but you know I, I had a, I had a fantastic time you know I had a great great 15 years maybe more of um, before it really started to really, really, really go wrong. Mm. And then it went wrong for quite a while before we managed to, I managed to sort of turn it around. Mm. I think I, I think I played, um, we've done a couple of shows and where things have, I mean, things have been going wrong for a while, but mm. we, we, we played, a, we played a couple of shows, one of them being festival where I came and dropped my trousers, asked, told the crowd to, why don't they just all fuck me up the arse and play two songs twice and called everyone a 
walks off. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, people thought this was great for as part of the show, um, but it wasn't. It was me having a meltdown. You know, it's just like you know, and 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 it happened. It happened a week before as well in um, a show we'd done at Coco, mm. and uh, some friends just came up to me and just said to me like, basically, Barry, I'm embarrassed for you, and and, and if you aren't enjoying doing what you're doing anymore, stop it because people are campaigning to come and see this rubbish, and you are rubbish. Mm. And they weren't lying, you know, it was like I had to take a really strong look at myself, look at the damage I was doing to the band, look at the damage the band were doing to themselves and, you know, some of the members left, some of them went into rehab. Um, But we managed to sort ourselves out and it took a year and then we'd gone from being the worst nightmare to suddenly picking up Best Live Awards, you know, Best Live Band Awards. And it was kind of like having some pride put back into yourself. Yeah. You know, because it was just like, it was awful. Yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it said before that you have to almost, you know, you have to reach that rock bottom almost before you can come back up, standing at the edge of that bottle. That yeah, you... I think I think it's I think you know, I mean, it's a horrible place to be, and I really had stopped enjoying it, but could still couldn't stop, mm. you know. And it was just like, and then, and even when I stopped, it was kind of like people were asking where that person had gone. It was. Trust me, you don't want that person. You know, I think my, you know, my wife helped massively. Um, I don't think she realised when we first got together what just how bad things were mm-hmm. until she witnessed it one night on full, in, in full effect. Where I think I was at Brighton and they had to open some club doors that that they hadn't opened for twenty years because I was standing at the top of the stairs like flipping Scarface, saying, "These are my people." <laughs> <laughs> dragging me out and throwing me in a car. And, uh, yeah, no, it's embarrassing. And it's not anything I'm proud of and I laugh about it. And like I said, but to me, I always thought it was it was always supposed to be sex, drugs and rock and roll. And I thought that's what the business wanted and that's what the industry wanted. And they kind of, like, pretend they do, but they don't. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants a fucking nightmare around them. I can imagine that there's a slight feeling of betrayal there that the when you enter into this industry that you kind of buying into that idea with the idea that that's what people want only to realise you're kind of um, made a fool of in a way. I don't know if that's your experience of it. But I don't know. I think, I think everyone sadly, mm-hmm. um, and it's weird because I even went on to win uh, an award. Music Magazine were giving out an award and they gave out every year. Um, called Caner of the Year, oh. which was basically the person who was the most off their head for the year. Mm. In and I and and I was the last, It was the final year that they actually gave the award out, and I refused to accept it. Mm. I didn't not because I didn't accept that I was the Caner of the Year, mm. but because I didn't because of having lost friends through overdoses, um, drug addiction was in my family. Um, I didn't want to be responsible for one person. You know, what I chose to do with my life was up to me. Mm. Um, and, I, and I had to own it and I'll take responsibility for it. What I wouldn't, didn't want was knowing what I then knew after many years, that I didn't want to be responsible for one person to, to actually try drugs because they thought I'd suggested it. And therefore, me be responsible knowingly or unknowingly for them and, and their path, which I knew could possibly and quite probably go very wrong. Mm. I refused to accept the award and they, they made it the final year that they ever gave out that award. Um, 
you know, um, past winners were like Brandon Block, Dave Beer, mm. um, various others, and I know that they then struggled and like Brandon's clean now, and but has been through a hell of a journey, and both you know, Dave and Brandon have both nearly cost them their lives and has certainly had a long-term effect on their health. Mm. So... You know, it's, it's a tough one. It, it, you know, we're, we're in an industry where it's surrounded, we're in a world and we're in a culture where drugs are everywhere mm-hmm. and easier than ever to get. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you spoke about um, the Astoria earlier, uh, I noticed myself feeling um, really quite sad because it, it, it kind of brings me on to the whole other point about, you know, the Astoria is no longer live venues out of business and all of this and and that was many years ago that that happened and now through the pandemic things are getting worse so I'm thinking you know when you add an industry where you've got this culture of of drugs and and then you're affecting their livelihoods as well um, by taking away those opportunities what that really does to the musician yeah I think this year has been awful I mean for not just the music industry but the world on a whole and I think more so than ever um, the one thing that has come out of it is people's understanding of mental health more than ever because I think more people have found themselves struggling Mm. because of the pandemic with their own mental health and their own ride and they can now understand you know, because before, like, you know, there was always a stigma to it. It was always stuck stiff upper lip. It was always, you know, do, not talked about. But I think more and more and more people have become aware that, you know, it, it is actually a thing. And, you you know, the, the highs and lows, you might have got a mild depression before, but, it, you know, something to have serious paralysis because of the situation, because of the uncertainty, because of the... You know, within the music industry, obviously, we've had <sighs> one with the, it was it's not been supported by the government hardly in any any way whatsoever, or the money's been misappropriated in the way that it's been spent or handed out mm-hmm. to um, various different industries, um, parts of the industry that just didn't necessarily need it. Um, the musicians have fallen way way between the cracks on that. Mm-hmm. So you've had your you've had your and the way the, the way as well that the music industry has been broken for, for some time, mm. that the only way of actually making money is to be touring these mm. days. You know, maybe there's a small 5% of the industry that can make money out of, out of selling music. But most of music's now free mm. in the way that it's done. And um, touring was a massive part of um, the way that you brought your income in. So that's been totally stripped. Mm. Um and so you've lost, not only have you lost your um, your ability to earn money and provide for your family, you've lost your identity, you've lost your purpose in life, and you've lost who you are in life. And mm-hmm. that just sets you on a question, you know, um, I mean, I'm 56 now, and I've done it this for the best part of 36 years, I guess, and... Um, I don't know what quite well. I guess the only other job I could do is probably work in a pub, but fortunately they're closed. So, um, 
you know, it, it, it really, it, it, you've lost everything, and you really have lost your whole purpose. But not just us. Again, and it's and it's been all the support crews, the the, the venues that are really struggling. I know Barnstable Factory closed down the other week. Um, three or four have gone in the last few weeks already and a struggle, and we're going to struggle as we try to reopen and whether or not that happens. But the whole hospitality and you know, entertainment industry has been really hit so hard because obviously we're, we're the first to be you know, out and we're going to be the last people to return. So it's been a really difficult year. And I've constantly phoned around to my friends that I know within the industry just to check on people and see how they're doing and, mm. and I'm not going to lie to you when I say to you they've been doing absolutely terribly yeah. like you know I can, people who normally have, are so positive and so you know always laughing and joking and um, you know some of them can't even talk which is worrying because mm. that's the ones that you really need to worry about or the ones that open up are in an absolute terrible state so mm. it's been a really really tough year and I think for everybody in the industry this last couple of weeks I've got my own festival called Mucky Weekender and I've been trying to start because we're hoping it's going to go ahead in September. So I've been starting to make phone calls just to book, you know, start procuring all the things we need, just like marquees, stages, lighting, toilets. And half the companies that um, were, were there before have gone. They've gone bankrupt, you know, because they just couldn't afford to survive because they can't afford for their stuff to be kept in storage and just rotting and going to waste. So, um, and I've been phoning up them and it's been heartbreaking listening to their stories. You know, and, and so they're struggling as well. Um, it's a really tough time. I think the thing that's really, really, really kept me focused, I mean, I'm quite in a lucky position. Um, financially, I'm not, as you know, I'm not terribly off in terms of um, I've gone from um, being bankrupt mm. to um, learning the hard way. And so I had, I had you know, I had a million and a half dollar deal and that went awfully wrong. And I came back and I thought I was about £120,000 left and I'd, I was about £16,000 overdrawn and more mm. addicted to drugs and just hemorrhaging money. Mm. So I'd lost everything. Um and from that, I kind of, I mean, that was like probably 10 years previous, to, prior to what's happening now. So after I'd lost everything, I kind of made sure I'd never get myself into that situation again. So therefore, I'd luckily sort of invested and done things and saved money rather than just completely blow it all up the wall and think tomorrow, you know, I'll, 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 I'll be able to earn it again. You know, and so I haven't really struggled through this time. Fans have been amazing in terms of purchasing merchandise and keeping their bands alive and the product, you know, so the support from the fans have been absolutely incredible. But the, the thing that's given me the focus is obviously Tonic Music for Mental Health because that's, I've been able to really you know, put my time into that, which has kept my headspace yeah. away from the dark side. Mm. Not to say that I haven't been to the dark side, because I have. And, you know, I think the George Floyd incident on top of everything else was the first time that I really felt paralysed. I couldn't actually even speak. Mm. You know, but I think for about two or three days, I literally could not talk. And it was like, wow, I you know, mm. it just blew my head away. What went on for you in that in that experience? 
nothing, just absolute emptiness. I couldn't, just pure anxiety, pure stress, pure hatred for the human race, mm. just, you know, just disbelief of mankind and, and mm. just what's the point? Mm. What, what happens to you as you say that, when you say what's the point? You have to get a grip of yourself. I mean, I say you have to. I just tried to find some kind of positive. Mm. Tried to find that from the darkness there will come light. From 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 learning these lessons that we would become better people, and we would have more compassion for each other, and we would start understanding. I mean, I don't get me wrong; I've never been naive about racism. Do you know what I mean? But I didn't think it still. I didn't, you know, just you know, half my band. Of, a uh, 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 black, uh, we're quite a multiracial outfit. So, um, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm completely aware about the races, but I didn't realise just how bad they felt. But, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and I spoke to Sean and I spoke to some of the other boys and just, you know, I was embarrassed, you know, how bad it was and how ignorant I was to it myself. Because to me, Unless you're in that situation, I guess, I just really didn't consider it to be the problem of the scale that it was. And it wasn't until, you know, and then felt quite stupid about the fact that I didn't, I was that ignorant. It's, it's devastating, isn't it? And and I guess what, I guess that must have been quite prevalent within the music industry in the 80s and 90s. Looking back, I'm imagining that you, now you're kind of seeing things that maybe at the time you didn't, but. I don't know. In what way? In what way? I guess like when you say you didn't realise just how much these colleagues of yours were being impacted and now realising it sort of has made you more aware in a way. If well, say, like, say like we was just to say something stupid like if we were having a split in a van that, mm. you know, like Sean or someone would get really upset because they knew if the police were going to pull us over and they could smell it, that they would go directly to him. Yeah. Do you know what I mean, or, or things like that? Just, just, just really silly things. And it was even worse when we were going into like Europe or Eastern Europe, where there was some, you know absolute blatant racism. Yeah. You know, and, and having to watch them take that was quite hard. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. In in two areas now, you've mentioned a kind of shame process that you've gone through around this and previously around drugs. You know, I'm guessing that that's quite a common experience amongst musicians and I'm thinking about the support there is for this kind of experience of things that have already happened and the losses that that incurs and where that support comes from from musicians and you know charities like Tonic Music for Mental Health really sort of acknowledging that and actually coming together to create something much more supportive than than maybe would have even been recognised in the past as being needed. I don't think there, that. I, to be honest with you, I don't really think there was a place before. Mm. It was. It was like, you know, um, part of being in the music industry. You know, and say like Amy Winehouse, um, Keith Flint. Obviously, that happened to him. You know, you're 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 a you're a you're a machine that, mm. that basically generates people money, so your well being's not there. Mm. Real um, driving factor that the factor is to get you back out on that stage and make sure you're still earning the money. You know, without looking at the the, the actual mental effects or the, about how you're actually doing or coping. Mm. You, you know, it's kind of like so there wasn't before really 
any support groups about. I think that was the thing. And obviously when I first joined Tonic, it wasn't to help musicians or people in our industry because I didn't, I thought that would be a selfish thing to do. Um, and it was more about helping other people. It was more about, you know, knowing, doing Tonic, Tonic doing what they do and, you know, their idea of helping people, you know, and recover from mental health, using the power of music, using their workshops, using their ska choir, using their punk choir and use it, you know, and then meeting these people and, and seeing the changes it, it, it had on them, the, the impact it had on them getting groups together and singing together and just, you know, the power of music is 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 so basic and primeval and one of the, you know, it's one of the things that's been going forever, you know. You, you use music to celebrate life, you use music to, to, to celebrate the passing of life, you know. It's like, you know, to celebrate a wedding, you know, from the basic most tribal dance to the tribal songs to whatever. Music has always been, it's such a powerful, emotive um, way of expressing yourself. Um, so it just seems to me like the most logical thing and then when they said they were going to talk about doing the ones to do the tonic rider my first interest my first response again was i kind of felt i was wasn't really comfortable with it because i kind of felt like it was again being selfish it was like you know or try or admitting that you had a problem mm. um but then, it, then everything kind of fell into place in terms of the timing of of when we decided that it would it would it was needed. It was one obviously Keith Flint commit taking his own life, mm -hmm. um, it, Amy and things, and then you know I don't obviously known about you know obviously was more than aware of I've been around it all my life. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't know how to approach it. And I didn't, like I said, I thought people would think we we're being selfish if we we're trying to raise money for ourselves, mm. if that makes sense. Um, but I think this year was the perfect time or last year because the whole industry was literally almost wiped out mm. overnight. Mm. And from that came a tsunami of problems mm. that really work and bring on a wave of mental health issues and with every charity and everything else losing all this funding it just seemed like it was the perfect time to, to launch the tonic rider and to actually put all your money and effort time and effort to raise money so that um so that charities like tonic could help mm -hmm. yeah and their ideas then made total sense to me and I've, I've gone on to do the peer groups and obviously the suicide awareness training and all the other programs that they do which now make total sense to me and, and, and I can understand and realize just how much they're totally you know they're needed yeah one of the things I really like about how Tonic Rider works what seemed to me the crux of it is that they were kind of moving away from clinical support as such because there's lots of clinical professional support for people but actually using music in an environment that can be healing in a non-clinical way so through these peer support groups it's really important because it makes people more comfortable yeah. I mean I've taken uh, I mean I wasn't I took part in the I'm ongoing. I 
I've got one more week or two more weeks left of the recent peer group that I took in. And I wasn't really sure that I wanted to do it. Um, I didn't feel, feel I needed to do it, but I wanted to do it because I wanted to um, understand and see what it, where, where, what it was that we were raising money and how it was working with people. So we got into a group with Adam Fajcek, you know, from Baby Shambles, who had his, his issues. Mm-hmm. And I joined the group. Um, and it's just been amazing to watch the progress over the last six, eight weeks of the group opening up. And they're all musicians and they're all people that are in the industry. Mm. And it really, just even in six weeks, the way that that group has bonded and the way that they've been able to open up and explain the things that they're going on. And it's, again, it's kind of weird because I can, I can feel the energy in the group now just really, really, really lifted. But again, it's all personal. Um, and I, I can only explain this like being in a band. Like if you go on stage and you're in a band, and this is all to do within your own head, that you'll go on and say there's six of you in the band, five of you will have the best gig ever, and one of you will come off and say, I hated it. Mm-hmm. And it's just about where your own space is in your head. And, and that kind of goes with the peer group. I mean, I, I've literally watched the level of the group and the energy of the group just come up and up and up. But at the same time, you know, the other day when I was just saying this and then one of the, one of the, one of the girls in the group had a breakdown. Do you know what I mean? Like literally almost when I was saying it and because she really wasn't, she was really having a hard time that week, you know, and was really struggling. And I think I just obviously got carried away um, thinking, and it, you know, thinking that I thought okay, I thought that I could feel the energy from everybody lifting, yeah. and then and then one person in that group was not in that space. Yeah. But it, the good thing that everybody in the group just like literally it was like, you know, if you could give everybody a big hug, then everyone literally reached out and you know reached out to her, and I think helped to lift her back up through it. You know, so I do understand those kind of. It is good to keep to do these things. Mm-hmm. How did you get approached to do it? Were you approached or did you approach them to become a patron? I went down, I got asked to perform. Um, Steph started off, started Tonic 12 years ago and we got asked to go and perform at a concert. Um, it was us of the jam, Terry Hall, um, and a lot of like-minded bands. And then I got speaking to Steph and she spoke about what they were doing and how they were doing it. And it totally made sense to made sense to me. So I offered just to get involved and help raise some money, you know. And um, we did we did a couple of shows. They and then I did a couple of skydives. Um, and they'd asked if I would like to, to to take a you know a bigger role. And I I, I was obviously honoured and that they didn't bust me. And then I just did a wing walk and then I on my own and then obviously started the flying circus and which got you know we had 20 people last year this year we've got 40 um and that the money raised from that was, was what launched the, the tonic rider mm-hmm. campaign and like I said during this whole lockdown I've not done any you know a lot of, a lot of bands or musicians and things like that and because they needed the money. I haven't needed the money. So therefore, if I do a live stream or something, I've got everybody to donate to said charities, whether it's been Tonic, whether it's been Save the Rhino or, um, 
various different things but that's really been my focus and given me a reason to do it and feel that I'm I'm doing it for the right reason rather than just doing it and um, look at me type thing, you know, and, and that's, that's really helped me and it's given me something to do and something to focus on. So, um, and it's amazing how many other musicians have got come forward. You know, we've, we've had also had an online auction and we've had everyone from the Gorillas, Suede, um, oh, just so many fantastic artists that have donated so much, you know, it's always it's, the funny thing is it's always musicians and artists that are always the first to come forward and give everything they can back because obviously we're in a quite lucky position that people have always given to us and supported us so it's mm. fantastic to be able to go out reach out and support other people um and obviously with the you know when, when the government wanted to showcase the best of um britain uh, with the say like the opening of the uh, Olympics, mm. they turned to the arts and hospitality industry, um, you know, and to put on the incredible show um, that they did for the opening of the Olympics. When the world wanted feeding, they turned to you know feed the world and live aid. You know, it was musicians and the hospitality industry that gave up all their time and everything to raise as much money as they could to feed the world. You were talking about the Olympics and the hospitality and how they turn to, to musicians and hospitality at times of need. And, and yet in this pandemic, they sort of dropped you, essentially. That, that's what I was hearing at that point. Yeah, I felt like, you know, we were, and I think that was when that was the start. And they still have dropped us for many to, to um, you know, they told us we were, we were not viable. Mm. You know, we're we're the fifth biggest contributor to the UK economy. Mm. You know, and mm. the arts and the the hospitality industry is one of the most important things and one of the best things that we and proudest things that this country produces. And and it just felt like you know, because the government, I guess, deemed that we were going to cost them money, decided that it was like. Mm. But you know, people have been incredible in the way that they have supported bands and they have donated. It's you know. It's always a, it's, it always brings out the best in people, mm. uh, and other people have really stepped up to the plate. You know, that's testament to to the, to the, the public, I guess, and mm. people who who have literally nothing, and they will give you, you know, but they'll do anything to support. Mm. They do the same thing to the nurses. You think about, like, you know, the nurses who who, who they've stood, stood there and told everybody to clap for and then offered them a 1% pay rise and told those that aren't from England to get out. Yeah. It's like, are you yeah. insane? You know, so I guess also, I, I also think that we, the, 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 the music industry, the arts industry and the entertainment industry don't fit the um, conservative agenda. You won't get um, Boris Johnson standing, being cheered on, on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury. Yeah. So I don't think they like us very much because as, as a rule, generally arts um, and artists are generally quite socialistic in their, in their um, approach to life. Yeah. You know, it's not about what you can get. It's about what, what um, is right, fair and, and as it should be, you know, people confuse that with communism. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting, actually, what you're saying there, because my experience of musicians is that that's how it starts out. And then as you enter into the industry and things become more commoditized, 
you're almost forced into a more capitalist system. I'm imagining that that's part of what happens to the identity of, of a musician. That the, what's... I, often, I often wonder about that. I often wonder about that myself because mm. there because it's when artists you know are really cool and they suddenly become real, you know. And I don't know whether or not it's when whether when when you're um, when you're on your way up and you have nothing. Mm. That writing songs about desperation, hard times, and having more understanding for that mm. is then um, jeopardised or compromised by you suddenly have everything and you suddenly become more greedy. Mm. I don't know. Mm. Is my answer to that because I've, <laughs> I'm successfully unsuccessful. What does that mean to you? <laughs> it means that I'm okay. I, I'm, I'm happy with what I, you know, with where I am and my place in the world. Um, I, 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 like I said, I've never been compromised into that way. That, that said, you know, like I said, I'm more than comfortable, but I certainly am not greedy, and I'm certainly. Um, I certainly try to look out for as many people as I can and be the best that I can mm. towards other people because other people have always been there for me. Mm. You know, when I've been at my worst, there's someone's always put their hand out and pulled me off the edge of the cliff. Mm. Said, so, you know, I've, I've, I've pushed it as far as I can in terms of being as bad as I can and as self-destruct as I can. And when I've most needed it, somebody, somebody as often... Well, always somebody, not not always the people that you expect to give them, you know, pull me back out of the darkness. Is that what we, you would say has helped the most other people rather than like professional help or? I, I think for myself personally, yes, because I've not been able, I'm not been one of those people. I mean, I've been to different counselling sessions and things like that, but I've not been one of those people that have been easily, easy to open up about things or even admit that I even have a problem. Mm. Um, mm. We know I know I've got a problem. <laughs> I'm like, you know, that hard the problem is trying to come to terms with you've got a problem and admitting you've got a problem mm. and trying to get help. Um, I guess, you know, my wife's been absolutely massively um, supportive and threatening <laughs> in terms of sort yourself out, fuck off. <laughs> but no, but actually not, you know, telling me that, you know, you really need to have a word with yourself. And like I said, a few friends and things like that. But they haven't told me anything I didn't know myself, you know. And, may, and, and in the past, I've never been able to help myself. You know, it, I, it was just because, as you know, it's an illness. It's not a, um, addiction. Isn't something that is um, instantly curable. I just got into a place where I just couldn't, didn't want to carry on the way I was going. You know, and just managed. So, you know, and I consider myself to be a lucky one that I managed to change my turn my life around. Mm-hmm. You know, but you're always only a step away from going back, slipping back, and, and you never know when things will take a turn. But right now I'm in a good place. So, like, when you mentioned before about Keith Flint, I'm imagining that's what you're talking about there, you know, people who don't come back. You know, a lot of a lot of people that you will have known, you've already mentioned some names like Keith Flint, but colleagues 
who didn't come back and ended their lives. And, you know, I'm wondering what that's been like for you. I mean, it's hard. It's hard when you lose anybody. Mm. Um, I think suicide is obviously like that you didn't see it coming or you can't understand it and therefore you feel like partly responsible yourself and think, could, should I have known? Should I have been aware? Should I, could I have done something? C- could, you know, um, and so, and, and just, just shows you that you never really know. Say someone like, I'm, I know, I know that the prodigy had just been a massive new American deal. They just they got a massive world tour coming up. They've just finished a huge, you know, they're massively successful. And someone with seemingly everything can have nothing, you know, that he feels that he's, you know, that life's not worth living, which is a terrifying thing. We, I, my brother's girlfriend, we found she'd OD'd on um, our sofa. That was hard. Again, just, no, I just, I think it's just, you just wonder what's going on all the time. It's, it's generally when people stop talking. Mm. or go into themselves that's when you've really got to start to, that's the one thing going through this has really taught me is 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 they're the ones that you need to keep an eye on because that's generally a big sign when you start getting introverted and and they stop communicating that something's wrong mm. and you, it, the worst thing is, is always is not it's just not knowing what's going on inside someone's head I'd rather have they have a full on blow out mm. and get everything out of their mind, even, even if I don't, you know, even if I'm not happy to hear what they say or don't like the um, abuse that's being thrown in my way, at least I can know what's going on. Do you know what I mean? And, and I can, mm. I can, I can understand, I can relate, I can communicate, I can, I can, I can take in what's they're being said and put some sort of logic behind it. It's when someone doesn't say something and it's building up. Mm. And you don't know what's going on. That's the worry. Mm. You know, for you know, when you're when you're in a dark place, and I found this when I'm phoning up my friends, they they don't want to talk to me because they don't want to bring me down. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They don't feel like they're bringing you down or they're putting their problems on you. Mm. And it's like nothing could be further from the truth. There's nothing more rewarding than being able to help somebody and to be able to totally understand. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm not one of those people who does generally go into myself. You know, I kind of let people know how I'm feeling as I'm feeling it, mm. whether rightly or wrong. Mm. And do you find that helps you to do that and what you get back really helps? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, of course. I think um, that, that, that I think it was two, the two things, though. I like, I've got a brother who's completely the opposite to me. And... Uh, I don't know if this relates back. When I was four years of age, I fell on the railway line, which meant that I suffered quite extensive burns. And therefore, my mother, I got most of the attention, not knowingly, growing up. And when I was at school, so all I've ever been shown is love. Do you know what I mean? You know, people went out of their way because I was, you know, involved in this horrific accident. My brother, on the other hand, because he... Um, most of the attention therefore went to me kind of when I guess was neglected and it didn't come apparent for many, 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 many years but the effect that that's had on him mentally was, you know, is is really now coming out 
well, it came out straight away, but it's really became apparent of why and, you know, growing old and being able to have a little bit more um, understanding of people's mental well-being or things, things that can affect you psychologically. It's like how we're so different. Um, and the anger he had, wasn't anger, I don't think that's fair, but the effect it had on him but the same you know it wasn't just he, he was treated like i said we were totally different with the way that we were brought up and i don't think it was deliberate either it was just like one of those things i've heard it quite a lot that very often the way that we relate when we're younger will kind of play out when we're in a band you if you're in a band those same dynamics will play out so did did you find the same thing would happen in your band dynamic that there was one of you that had more attention than the other there's lots of things that go on in a band dynamic and, and there's a lots of different egos and there are lots of... I think Jason O'Brien, my first partner in my band, said it was like a 15-year hangover. Mm. Um, do you know, you know because, the, because, because the dynamics of a band are like being in a long-term relationship, except, you're, um, yeah. except that you're um, together a hell of a lot more than you would be with any partner. Um, in in situations and when drink and drugs become involved, um, obviously arguments and um, relationships break down very quickly. So it's, you know, being in a band, and the biggest, the most difficult part of being in any band is keeping it together. Mm. It's, it really is like, it's like, it's like being in a long-term relationship mm. with domestic violence thrown in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just you are you get on each other's nerves. You're horrible to each other. You know you 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 know as much as you think. Best thing that happens at the band um, during this lockdown is the fact that we've actually had time to have some time apart and appreciate each other. Because mm. you know the, the the thing is the hard you know again the thing with the industry is. The late nights, mm. the exhaustion, the highs that you get from playing, and then the massive come downs you get from after the shows, an hour or two, just like taking any kind of drug. And also um, good reviews and bad reviews, mm. you know, and you only ever remember the bad times, you never remember the good times. So that's, you know, that's the difficulty in, mm. and the hardest challenges of any band, mm. I think. Mm. So when and I... problems come. Yeah. Do you remember your, do you still remember those worst reviews? Yeah, of course. Mm. Yeah, I yeah, I think um I've been called many things. <laughs> I think you know we you know we went from enemy darlings to the sound of um Norman so fat boy Slim's sweaty jockstrap. Um you know you you know yeah, I've been called many things. It's it, it's part it goes with the industry and and the other thing I think the hardest thing about the UK music industry is they love to build you up and then they love to knock you down. Yeah. You know, and it's uh, um, and not so much in America or the rest of the world, but it's also quite ageist over here. Do you know what I mean? It's got to be the next thing and the youngest thing, and it's mm. not. There's not much sort of respect for heritage, if you like, or mm. experience. You know, it's so that can be quite cruel in this mm. industry as well. Mm. 
there's something quite sinister, you know, when you describe it like that. I don't know whether it's deliberately sinister or not, but this idea of from beginning to end, it's like you're taking people, that, as you say, it's ages. So people come into the industry usually quite young and green and with the best intentions. They come in, as you said, with this kind of slightly more socialist attitude loving people very creative with dreams of like influenced by bands that they loved and musicians that they loved and then they're sort of plied and given money and plied and um with drugs maybe not so much now but certainly in the past and then the press build them up and then there's a sense of making them feel that they are special and just when they've got to that place where they they have that sense of that they've created this ego in a way that they've been set up for out the rug gets pulled and suddenly you get all the bad reviews you're addicted to the drugs no one wants to know anyone it's really traumatic I can imagine and I just have a I have a sense that there would be a huge sense of betrayal from that. Yeah, I think that's why so many people leave the industry um, because they because they struggle with it so much, and it is. I mean, it's it, you know, it is it's on paper it's the it's a glamorous life. In reality, it's a harsh, brutal, um, vicious um, life, uh, and with ultimate cruelty and disappointment and mm -hmm. by you know the nature of physics what goes up must come down mm. and you know nobody likes coming down no. and then you've got and then you've got to build yourself up but the good thing is i mean i always compare myself to a boxer um mm -hmm. Like I said, you, I guess being successfully unsuccessful, going back to that again, but I always consider myself like a boxer. It doesn't matter how many times people knock me down. Mm -hmm. As long as I keep standing up, I've still got a chance of winning. <laughs> Just keep getting back off your feet, dust myself off, take it on the chin and come back and keep fighting again. <laughs> again, in this pandemic, I've realised that I don't want to... Before I toured 11 months of the year, for the best part of 20 plus years. I, it's been a fantastic life. Every line on my face is because I've laughed my way around the world, um, wondering how I'm getting away with it. Um, but I've also realized that I am a performing seal and that I, you also become the worst friend in the world in that, you, you know, as sociable as the hours are, when you're working, everybody else isn't working, you're there to entertain them. And therefore you become, like I said, the worst friend in the world. You miss everybody's wedding, birthdays, funerals and whatever, and your excuse is always you're working. But the one thing that this pandemic has shown me is that the things that are most important to me in my life, which is the people that are closest, the ones that I love, my family, and they're the ones that really deserve the time. So um, I intend not to tour like I was before in the same way, with just the same intensity. I just don't think it's good for your health. I don't, it's certainly not good for your um, domestic or social life. And um, you should be, you know, there's nothing more rewarding than spending time with people you love and care about and care about you. Yeah. And you you mentioned as part of that with these groups 
Yeah, because you mentioned working with Adam Feidcheck and I've I've interviewed him before for this podcast and he said something very similar. And um, what's quite heartwarming in a way is this idea that, you know, yourself and him and other very well-respected musicians are actually coming together and talking to each other about this stuff rather than being in isolated bubbles, going through it on your own. Because I think the truth is it's more the norm than the, than, than, than the exception mm-hmm. to the rule. You know, I think this goes on in every single band. And I think, you know, I don't think there might be one band that hasn't got a member that's gone through some sort of mental health issue or just, you know, it, it, my company's called What the What the What Could Possibly Go Wrong Limited. Um, and we've got a documentary coming out called "What Could Possibly mm-hmm. Go Wrong." Limit what could possibly go wrong? The history of the Dub Pistols—it's everything. That's part part of being in a band, and it's just how you deal with it, and how you get, how you come back. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, it's really important that I think more and more, like you say, yes, more. It's good that more and more bands are coming together and talking about it. But, but I can guarantee you, every single band is going through it, or gone through it, mm-hmm. or will go through it. Yeah. That's just the only thing I can tell you. Yeah. But it's the same as being in a relationship. You're not every day in your life cannot be your best. Mm. It's how you deal with it and get through it. So it's not avoiding. It's not avoiding the, the struggle. It's adapting to it. Yeah, adapting the struggle, knowing that things will pass. Mm. That you did this. It's a moment. It's like everything. It's like I said. It's like the high that's going to pass and therefore you know it's like after the sunshine and the rain you know mm. after the rain there will be sunshine mm. and after the sunshine there will be rain and, and yeah. that circle is going to continue it's a it's, a, it's adapting to, to have a defense that when these mechanisms kick in that you don't let them overwhelm you in either way now i don't let myself get too high i don't get carried away when everything's going fantastic because i'm always looking around the corner thinking i'm gonna i know, I know there's that hammer waiting for me around the corner to knock me back down again. So it's just adapting and, like I say, accepting that this is going to happen, this will happen. Be prepared. Obviously, there's clear connotations there with Peter Hook and and what happened in that band with Ian Curtis. Was that the reason behind doing that cover? Yeah, it it, it seemed to me the most logical. I mean, one of the the most iconic songs of all time. It's obviously what happened to Ian Curtis is so relevant to what we're talking about. And, you know, the title, the words, everything to me just, you know, just resonated. And I just thought it was just, you know, it was something I always wanted to do. It's quite a brave thing to do, touch the song that's that big. But, um, I, yeah, it was for that exact reason. I don't think nothing, you know, is, 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 is more, could be a more poignant song or a situation that's happened to a band. Um, so that's why Blue Monday was, you know, the chosen single. You know, what I enjoyed about it is that it actually sounded quite positive. There was a kind of like 
reggae sound running through it and, and I found it quite upbeat and what I noticed is hearing the lyrics more clearly in, in this cover version I could really hear the lyrics stations around the world have been playing it so okay. it's obviously um, but I think because of the right reasons because they understand what we're doing with the charity as well yeah just got a new compilation album out called Welcome to the Jungle on Jungle Cakes that came out last week it seems to be doing really well on the charts um, I've just, we've just arranged Tonic the Flying Circus for this year which I think we've got over two days this year so it's doubled in size and we're aiming to raise at least £80,000 this year um, through that I've recorded another album, but whether or not I would have put it out this year or not, I don't know yet. I haven't decided on the timing of it. And um, I've got my own festival called Mucky Weekend that, that I've been um, putting together and pulling together, which is in September the 10th and the 11th in Winchester. And how can people get tickets for that at the moment? They can go to dubpistolsmusic.co.uk and all the information will be there or info at muckyweekender.com. So um, yeah, and then and then and then just doing um, live streaming, so um, they can just get all the information off the website. And I'm, I'm normally I'm normally I've got a radio show on Totally Wired Radio, which is a monthly sort of reggae and dub show. And then I've got a monthly radio show on Data Transmission, which is kind of more um, upbeat jungle sounding. So just keeping myself as busy as I can, really. Yeah, in terms of what you're doing with Tonic, is there, are you doing more groups? I'm currently in the peer group that comes to end in two weeks time. And then after that, I'm doing a um, suicide awareness course. Okay. I'm trying to get myself, um, I mean, it's like I said, I'm not a trained psychotherapist. I'm not trained in these fields in any way whatsoever. So I want to understand more and more about what it was that I was raising money for and but to be honest, I'm quite happy to um, raise the money to, to help pay the people who can actually help the people that need helping. So I think they're the, I think they're the actual saviors and the angels and the pop stars in this one. The people who are doing the helping. 
Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, they really are. And I mean, the Tonic Group, um, Marlang, um, Tom Parr, Steph Dawn, those girls are just incredible. The amount of the, the amount of passion and effort that they actually put in is incredible. Mm. So um, I'm just happy to support them. Fantastic. It was, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you, my darling. Really appreciate it. No have, have a good day if you can. I've got to go out and do a live stream now, so I've just got to put my show together, which is what I was doing. Oh, wow. Well. That's <laughs> okay. okay. Enjoy. <laughs> Take care. everyone for listening um i hope you enjoyed that i'll be back in my next episode speaking to geordie shenton who's the coordinator for tonic music for mental health and he's got loads of new announcements so um stay tuned for that please tweet me at sound effects pod that's sound effects with an a or find me on instagram sound underscore effects underscore podcast and you can email me at sound effects podcast at gmail.com um download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you would be willing to leave a podcast review on apple podcasts i'd really appreciate it because it really really helps me i'd love to know what you think i always like knowing what you think um so let me know as i said earlier i was going to give you details of barry's flying circus um so here they are Barry Ashworth's Flying Circus, it's a collective wing walk for mental health, which is taking place on the 28th and the 29th of September. It's got a fundraising target of 80k in aid of Tonic Rider, which we mentioned in this episode. It's taking place at Aerosuperbatics in Sirencester. I think that's how it's pronounced, Sirencester, if anyone knows, if anyone thinks I've said that wrong please let me know and I'll um, make sure I'll say it correctly next time. Basically Barry's hosting a collective wing, wing walk with 40 fellow wing walkers which include Bears from Happy Mondays, Sean Evans from Cochin, Nick Reynolds from Alabama 3, um, Darren Brownson from EMF and Barry Ashworth's brother-in-law. He's a Scottish prosthetics doctor who lost his arm in a London road accident in 2020. So this fundraiser essentially is going to be enabling the charity to continue providing free practical mental health support including emotional coping skills, acceptance, commitment therapy, suicide prevention education, mindfulness and loads of digital resources and advice for musicians and venues um, going beyond lockdown. Tonic Ride is going to be working virtually with venues um, it's going to be rolled out physically to green rooms, festivals, nighttime industries, association members. Um, and the aim is to include Tonic Rider on all rider lists, venue posters and via Tonic Hubs at partner live events. 
so this brings me to explain what's coming next in part two because Tonic Rider is launching a research study which is being led by PhD researcher Geordie Shenton who's looking at substance use amongst working musicians and Adam Fajcik is also doing a research study into mental health of music industry professionals to inform ongoing preventative work to get involved visit www.tonicmusic.co.uk forward slash tonic rider you can find barry's flying circus on facebook instagram and twitter at barry's flying circus or at barry's flying um and youtube also has a lot of videos of previous wing walks if you wanted to check out those you can also go on facebook at tonic music for mental health i've added a range of support information for getting help in other ways in my show notes beneath this episode but if you can't get access to that and you're feeling suicidal right now you can call samaritans on 116123 or you can find a list of crisis support helplines on the MIND homepage at mind.org.uk and follow the links there. Um, you can also check out the charity My Black Dog, which is set up by um, Eddie Temple Morris at myblackdog.co. Um, and if you're a guy, um, check out calmzone.net. Um, the Calm charity is the campaign against living miserably, which um, deals with male suicide and male mental health. Um, now, you might have noticed that earlier on in, in this episode, Barry briefly mentioned something about football, and he specifically made a reference to Hillsborough. And I just wanted to take this moment to alert you to an excellent charity, which um, a listener of mine um, alerted me to, and I think it's fantastic. It's the Hillsborough Survivors Support Alliance, which you can access on HSA dash us.co.uk um so they provide all sorts of support for people who were affected either directly or indirectly by the hillsborough disaster so i just wanted to mention that as well so i think that's all for this episode i will be back in part two with more info if i've missed anything out i'll include it there and as ever you can get in touch with me please do thank you all for listening and i'll be back in part two